I want to thank you, too, for permission to not be here certain Sundays. Obviously, last week uh, I was gone. I don't know if you knew where I was, um, but as a mountaineer maniac, uh, WVU grad, I met my college buddy. We were in each other's weddings. We lived in the dorm together. Um, we met in Kansas and went to the West Virginia-Kansas basketball game last uh, Saturday. Uh, the only two in the crowd wearing gold. Let's play a little Where's Waldo right now. Can you see Pastor Chuck and his friend <laughs> in this crowd of blue? And yes, the answer would be they are right there. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I am a little nuts, and so when the camera did come in for a close shot for these three ESPN sideline reporters that were doing their update, I made sure that the golden blue was well represented. Um, if you look behind her head, that's me and my West Virginia hard hat. Uh, a close up in case you can't see who it is. There he is. <laughs> you got to be sort of nuts to do this kind of stuff. I mean, there were 16,000 people there and we were uh, a, a minority. It gave me a sense, of, a feel for uh, what persecuted Christians feel like in a world. <laughs> Uh, and we lost this really painfully close game where our coach got thrown out, but I won't get into all that today. <laughs> Just say that uh, this has sort of been the story of my life. I really enjoy being the outsider. I love being the one who is uh, the weirdo, and, and I don't know why that's the case. I don't know why I've always been comfortable as a fly in the ointment. Uh, but early, early on as a Christian, uh, I, I was comfortable with the notion of being uh, uh, a believer and, a, and an outspoken one. Uh, I remember very clearly my first experience of putting a bumper sticker on my car that said, I love Jesus. Now, my mom wasn't particularly fond that I papered one of our cars with this bumper sticker. And you may say, how corny is that? But for me, it was a really important step. Now, lest you be worried, this wasn't one of those crazy Christian bumper sticker people. Have you seen these people that drive down the street in these cars that are like, you know, if in case of rapture, driver will disappear. That's the good news. You know what I mean? Just what the culture needs to hear is that death is certainly coming to them in the event that Jesus returns. These people are insane. You ruin the value of your car. Let me just say once again, this doesn't help the kingdom of God. If you have these all over your car, forgive me for insulting you. Not helpful. Uh, I would say uh, my earliest memories as a young, enthusiastic Christian, and this is in the late 70s, early 80s, was this was was the born again bumper stickers you'd see, uh, and this was I was as a young Catholic when I heard the term born again. I was uh, I was really thrown for a loop. I didn't even know what that mean meant, and, and then all of a sudden it was on bumper stickers. The I found it wave of bumper stickers, and then people would literally have uh, I'm born again on bumper stickers. But then everybody co-opted this, and so nowadays you see these bumper stickers. Uh, Born-again pagan, born-again heathen, uh, born-again local. And, of course, this is the ethos of our day, born okay the first time. A and that gets to the heart of the matter, which is a misunderstanding about what it means for someone to be born again. Oftentimes in the parlance of our culture, the term born again means recommitted. I'm a born-again something or the other. Born-again Christian is really a redundancy, like three-sided triangle. 
As we'll see in today's passage from John 3, 1 through 15, every genuine Christian has been born again. Um, I don't know when it happened for you, but if you're a Christian, at the moment of your conversion, the Spirit of God entered your heart and your spirit was brought to life from a state of death. That was the moment of being born again. That looks different for everybody, but this is essentially what Jesus is saying. A conversation is taking place between he and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, somebody who was part of an organization that was rather hostile to Jesus and his followers. And this is the first of a series of conversations that will continue in the Gospel of John that are all sort of launched from the last verses of John chapter 2 that were read last week. I want to reread them if, if I can because it's important to know why we're being launched in these series of conversations. John 2 verses 23 through 25 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. Nicodemus was not only the first representative of those who Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to because when the Bible was originally penned, there weren't these chapter separations. This was an ongoing narrative. There weren't verses like when they were writing the Bible. You do know that they didn't write like one. You know, they, These were put in later for our benefit, but at times it can distract us away from seeing the flow of a, pic, of a, of a story. And, and in particular, this case, uh, Jesus having a conversation with the first of a handful of people who he knew they're not going to always be there for me. I know what's in a man. In addition to being this first representative of those not trusted by Jesus, we'll see in this text that Nicodemus is a metaphoric representative of the entire human race. My approach to John 3, 1 through 15 will be a little bit different today than my standard preaching practice. The first three points will come much more spatily and track the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And the fourth will really serve to provide a lens for understanding the purpose of Jesus' coming in the first place. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And so our first point today is that the representative approach and the responsive declaration. This is what I want you to see in the first three verses. You see a representative of ours coming and approaching Jesus. And you see Jesus declaring something to be true. In verses 1 through 3, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, As a religious person, Nicodemus represents Man's natural pursuit of meaning in life through some sort of religious experience. Men and women are chasing after something that doesn't satisfy the soul's need for intimacy with God. And like so many others, Nicodemus was connected to 
tangentially the people of God or the organization of God without having any type of personal, interactive, vibrant fellowship with the creator of his own soul. Who was this Nicodemus? It says he was a Pharisee. He was really a a threefold person in that culture. As a Pharisee, he would have been a Jewish ruler, which is effectively a politician. He would have been engaged in dialogue with the Roman government, whom he didn't like very much, neither did his friends. He was also a Pharisee, which means uh, he was a theologian, and he was a, he was a religious leader. And Pharisees had the distinction of being ones who would have been the orthodox theologians of their day. They believed in the afterlife. They took Scripture really seriously. Uh, he was a, a, a believer, a scholar also. He would have been somebody who was respected for his high level of education. So you've got this guy who's this trifecta personality, political, powerful, philosophical, educated. And he comes to Jesus saying things like, we know. And he's really trying to butter Jesus up a bit. Now, he does recognize the miracles that are taking place. And he was echoing the sentiments of people he was representing in some way. So why does he come at night? This, this Pharisee came at night. Most, commenta- most commentators think it has something to do with him not, being wanting, not wanting to be seen with Jesus. At the heart of it, though, is perhaps a sign of his conflicted soul and something I think we could all relate to, which is that we know Jesus is right, but we're not quite ready to trust and follow him. See, Jesus sees him coming, and maybe he's working Jesus because he knows something in his soul needs to connect with God, but he's reluctant to do so publicly because he doesn't want to be held accountable or he doesn't want to be seen as being sympathetic and loses position with the culture that was very anti-Jesus. And a question wasn't even asked before Jesus declares to him Truly, truly, I say to you, he didn't ask a question. Jesus just gives him an answer. The Gospel of John features Jesus frequently using this phrase, truly, truly. That's what it says in the ESV version, the English Standard Version. In the NIV, it says, very truly. In some other translations, it says, I tell you the truth. Both of these expressions are using the Greek word, amen, uh, taken directly from the Hebrew word, amen, uh, which Most of the time for us, we use at the conclusion of a prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. However, it can also be not just the conclusion of a prayer, but can be spoken to show agreement with a statement, such as when spiritual illumination takes place in the context of a sermon. People who are non-Presbyterians and Baptists sometimes will say, amen. That's why we have a lot of non-Presbyterians and Baptists here. (laughs) Jesus does something a little different. This amen means so be it. It's an expression of total agreement. We use it at the end of things. Jesus says it before giving the message, which implies that what follows is true, but it's also that the person making the statement has firsthand knowledge And probably more importantly, the authority to state that something is going to happen. Something is going to be said. 
that is true. And Jesus' authority is what is at stake here for Nicodemus and for us. For only somebody with authority could do, as Nicodemus said, these signs, these miracles that Jesus was doing. Hence the challenge for Nicodemus and for us is when Jesus effectively says, the way you've understood religion and relationship with me has been incorrect. In order to be a member of God's family, you have to be born again. Instead of the term for family, Jesus uses the kingdom of God, but even that terminology is meant to communicate inclusion in God's covenant people. Jesus throws Nicodemus off a bit by using new terminology to declare, to declare the nature of inclusion in this new covenant. So Jesus is, is already giving a clear declaration to what's going on in Nicodemus' life. The second part of this conversation is the reasonable question and the rational answer. So right away, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Verse 4. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The scriptures in other places speak of the necessity to have a spiritual mind to interpret spiritual things. Uh, we certainly agree, obviously. But we might add that if one wants to understand what Jesus really means, one would need to read it in light of who Jesus claims to be. Or most certainly, Jesus will be misunderstood. This means when Nicodemus asks a reasonable question, uh, what he thought was a literal declaration that a person would humanly be, need to be born a second time, Jesus answers him in light of the kingdom he's bringing. We call this in the theological world gospel hermeneutics or the science of interpreting scripture through the overarching new covenant purposes of Jesus Christ. This is a reasonable question. If you're not thinking spiritually and somebody comes to you and says, yeah, if you want to be part of this, you've got to be born again, you're going to hear you've got to climb back into the womb and be born a second time. Now to drive home his point about the spiritual nature of all this, Jesus drops another truly, truly, the second of three he's going to give to Nicodemus in this, which means to say, as I'm sure he would with me, uh, Nicodemus, you're a smidge hard-headed, so truly, truly, understand this. I'm going to amen on the front side. What I'm about to say matters. Listen up. The nature of being repetitious is to denote emphasis, and Jesus wants Nicodemus to understand This kingdom is a spiritual one, not what he and other Pharisees had been hoping for in terms of a political revolution to liberate them from Roman oppressors and occupiers. Uh, D.A. Carson, a great theologian, would say that the essence of Jesus' teaching in this passage is that the character of those born is determined by the source that gives them birth. Uh, If you're born humanly, you're a child of humanity. If spiritually, you're a child of God. Nicodemus, now thoroughly befuddled, maybe dumbfounded, perhaps a little shocked, 
certainly surprised and not in a good way. Because if you look to the context, the way Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, this is not like he's surprised in a warm and friendly, surprise, we got you a birthday cake, Nicodemus kind of way. He's kind of like almost agitated. You can feel it in his, in his tone. I'm trying to understand this. I want to be connected to you. I recognize that you've got authority of some sort, but you're sort of rocking my world, and it irritates me because I really don't feel like getting right behind what you're saying. And it's at this point where Jesus steps up the conversation And our our next look at the conversation is the restated point and the rebuked pride. Verses 7 through 10. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Jesus responds to Nicodemus' incredulous surprise by rebuking and humbling this teacher of Israel. Nicodemus is now where many of us have been. At the point of believing that Jesus is who he claims to be, God in the flesh, but finding his expectation for our lives baffling and maybe even a little illogical or unrealistic. And like Nicodemus, we just don't understand Jesus all that well. Jesus' willingness to speak a corrective rebuke to this Pharisee is important to note because there are those, they would call themselves Christians, who would claim that they love what Jesus does and says, but they would reject or eschew the teaching and demeanor of the apostles. They would say things like, I like the red letters of Jesus. I ignore all of the letters from all of Jesus' followers. Problem is, the red letters in the Gospels were written by Jesus' followers too. Uh, Additionally, while you may think that their approach to confrontation of behavior that is displeasing to God or theology that is out of sync with the Gospel, it appears to me that A, the apostles in the letters of the New Testament are merely mirroring and imitating what Jesus does frequently in the Gospels. Jesus says difficult things in a loving but often misunderstood way. And the other thing is, I do think it is loving to point out someone's fault if their fault is what is keeping them from experiencing God. How unloving would it be for you to know that somebody was going to walk in front of a bus and you not say anything because you didn't want to hurt their feelings? I mean, there is a way to do it and and do it in a way that communicates you do love them. And in Nicodemus' case, it is his pride. It is his unwillingness to recognize that Jesus has the right to expect him to follow. Jesus created him. It is his pride that is keeping him And standing between he and God, Jesus clarifies the nature of spiritual birth in this context by using words that the Apostle John has already stated previously in the first chapter of John. We've gone over these before. This is what John said to describe what happened when Jesus came to his own, the Jews, of one 
of whom was a Pharisee like Nicodemus. John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who, before it says that, it says, when Jesus came to his own, they received him not. But to all who did receive him, receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus has already been on the record as saying that people who are his children are the ones who receive him. And to receive him, you need to be born of the Spirit. You need to be regenerated by the Spirit. You need to have the Spirit come and bring life to your soul so that you can begin to engage God with confidence through what Christ has done for you. What Nicodemus found out is that a person can't think, live, or power their way into God's family. Neither one's intellectual capacity, uh, spiritual determination, or cultural position is useful in the pursuit of becoming a child of God. Simple humility and complete reliance upon God is the only means of God's grace to us. Even the capacity to be brought to spiritual life is a gift from God. Jesus says the Spirit's ways are like the wind. We don't know where it's going or who it will affect. But for a person to enter into the covenant family of God, the Spirit of God will have to blow into their life. It will have to touch them and affect them. R.C. The late R.C. Sproul said this in his book on the Gospel of John. A person must be changed by God. The disposition of his heart, which by nature does not want to do God's bidding, must be altered by God the Holy Spirit. Man's natural tendency is to flee from the presence of God and to have no affection for the biblical Christ. Therefore, if you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit, in his sweetness, in his power, in his mercy, and in his grace, has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. So you, know, you are now alive to the things of Christ and you rejoice in the kingdom into which he has brought you. This is the conversation that has been taking place. Jesus is telling this Jewish leader who has a whole set of expectations about what God will be like and really kind of sort of figures he's got a lot of it figured out and is going to come to Jesus and Jesus blows his paradigm for what it means to be a follower of God completely to pieces. This is what happens to all of us. It has to happen because if we think we're doing God a favor, we've got the relationship with him all mixed up. Nicodemus is a pattern, is a metaphor, is a picture of the human being's approach to God. We somehow or another think we can sort of work our way into God's presence and, hey, I understand you're sort of like this, and, and, and then have God say, hold on a second, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the conditions for the relationship. I want a relationship with you, but let's be clear about who's creator and who's created. Now, this is what has to happen. If you want to be a part of my family, you have to be born by the Spirit. This is a spiritual kingdom. This, has to tr this transformation has to take place 
within you. Separate from being born physically, you have to be born spiritually. And Nicodemus is still in a place of sort of foggy comprehension of what it means. Now Jesus is going to bring real clarity in Nicodemus's terms, in language that will be even clearer for him to understand. And this is why this fourth point for us this morning is really a paradigm or a lens through which we're going to be able to understand more of what Jesus has been saying to this Pharisee. And I call this part of the conversation the right to punish and the restoration plan. Jesus says this, and for the third time he opens up a can of truly, truly. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus begins these verses, he begins by, uh, he's going to answer quite elaborately over the next 15 verses of John chapter 3. We're just going to touch on verses 11 through 15 and next week get to dig in even more deeply into an explanation to Nicodemus's objections and questions. What we learn from Nicodemus here, though, is that if you're closed off to what Jesus says about reality, it's unlikely you're going to experience his joy. He says to Nicodemus, if you're not going to listen to me about anything earthly, why would you listen to anything I have to say about things in heaven? Why would, why would you care? What we see is that if you don't recognize Jesus' authority to speak truth, to authoritatively direct our lives, we will never comprehend him or desire to follow him. Why would we? If you're here and you say, I I don't recognize Jesus' authority, then why would you follow him? Jesus is claiming a unique comprehension of an understanding of things based on the fact that he says he came from heaven. No one knows what's in eternity except the one who came from eternity and is now here. He's saying, I'm that person. I've got special, unique insight. This is the height of arrogance if it isn't true. If it isn't true, he should be rejected out of hand. Jesus is a liar if it isn't true. If heaven was his home, though, he was in a position to speak authority of the, speak authoritatively of these things. And to help Nicodemus comprehend the nature of his mission on earth, Jesus is going to hearken back to a significant event in the Hebrew Bible, one with which this Pharisee would likely be acquainted. Jesus is going to reference an episode from the exodus of God's covenant people from Egypt. That's verse 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus says his mission is symbolized in the Jewish experience of being saved vicariously through God's provision. The Old Testament book of Numbers details the rebellion of the Israelites in the desert. 
God had freed them from the Egyptians. Uh, however, God's time frame for getting them to the promised land was different than ours. Can anybody else say amen to that? I mean, you seriously, I mean, have you ever felt that before? Like, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to trust you. When are we going to make this happen, God? Well, this is the Israelites. They're like, okay, you got us out of Egypt. We appreciate that. How long till we get to the promised land? And God is taking God's time. And the people begin to grumble. Now, you have to keep in mind, and this is a real great application point for all of us, as we look at the Israelites, pretty easy to pick on them. 2020 is always best vision and hindsight. God knows the best time for the Israelites to advance as a people. They don't. He sees the whole board. They only see what's in front of them. He knows the optimal time to bring about the best for his people, Israel. But like us, they failed to trust the Lord, and they got punchy towards God. They got impatient and angry. And God calls his children to a patient trust in his goodness. So they have to turn and they have to change their ways. And, and I want to read from Numbers 21 so you get the flavor of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. From Numbers 21, 5 through 8. And the people spoke against, Mo, against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water and we load this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This picture is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. This is what his life is going to be about. That people deserve to be punished. That by nature, we are rebellious people. We are impatient people. And I don't think we need to look too far into world history to see what happens when an unrestrained, powerful human being gets their hands on resources. They absolutely abuse them. Human nature through the 20th century was on full display in all of its horror. We know down deep inside about ourselves that there's this broken place, this sinful place that is interested in ourself above all others. Jesus is simply pointing out that the process by which somebody has to be brought into relationship with God involves dealing with the byproduct of our rebellion. So the Israelites weren't being punished by God for no good reason. They basically raised up their hands and said, we hate what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for freeing us from bondage. Thank you for promising a future in a promised land. But daggone it, we're sick of the quail. We're sick of the manna from heaven. We're thirsty and we're hot and we're miserable. We want to go back to Egypt. And, and this was an insult, and rightfully so. Can't you see that? So the, the, the snakes that were sent, they were designed to restrain and 
and really get the people to understand your, your behavior, your conduct is way out of bounds here. And we know that this was the intent of God because he provides a mechanism by which they can actually be restored. A restoration plan. Certainly God has the right to punish, but he also lovingly provides this restorative plan. He, this bronze serpent is lifted up and his people look to this serpent They are healed, and in the same way, we have sinned against the Lord, and God has provided a means by which we can receive forgiveness. As the bronze serpent was lifted up so anyone who would ever believe could be healed from the effects of God's judgment, Jesus was saying he would have to be lifted up, and whoever looks to him will receive liberation from the punishment for their sin. Whoever looks to God and says, I need forgiveness, and I want to know you will be saved when they do so through what Jesus was being done, being lifted onto a cross to pay for sins. When we call out for salvation from the Lord, his spirit is received with the gift of salvation, and a person is given a brand new life. They are spiritually born. Not simply committed to living ethically as a Christian might, or to give the Christian experience or community a try, But through one's faith, you've been inhabited and brought to spiritual life. You've been healed. You have been forgiven. John wrote later in his letter, 1 John 3, verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Today might be a moment in your life where you have been very religious. You have been a part of church communities. You've been kind of secondarily or in some other way connected to religious people. But you have never been born again. You can say, I I don't know what it means to actually walk with God, to know in my heart that I have been completely exonerated and forgiven for my sins. I've never had the Holy Spirit come live. I've never received Christ into my heart. And today through communion, you can do that. In fact, by taking communion at our church, you are saying that that has already happened, that the Spirit of God lives in you and that you are his follower. So this morning, I want to give you an opportunity, if this is new to you, to pray and respond to Jesus' call to be born again.